Well, today is a fifth Sunday, and we've decided to do something a little bit different today. We're going to take a small detour from our summer series. And because we're reading through uh, the Gospel of John this month, I thought it'd be a great idea to have just one message uh, that centers on some of the themes and the stories uh, that we see in this incredible book. So today we're going to actually do something a little different. We're going to have some team teaching uh, from myself, uh, from Gunnar Mock, and from Ryan Ross. And I've asked these two guys uh, to each pick a different story that has really stood out to them in John's gospel as, as they've read through this month. And with the time that we have together today, the three of us are each going to take uh, one of these stories, um, share it in story form, and then try to point to one truth, again, that really stood out to us in John's gospel. You know, John is, is unique and that from start to finish, uh, this book seeks to conclusively, um, to, to prove conclusively that Jesus is more than just a man. That's really John's goal in helping us get to know who Jesus is. He's, he's seeking to prove conclusively that Jesus is more than just a man. And we're actually given the purpose of John's gospel in John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. I'll have the scripture up on the screen this morning. Uh, this is really, this sums up the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's really the purpose of John's Gospel. See, John introduces us to Jesus in such a personal and powerful way. Uh, one pastor has even said that John introduces us to Jesus through people who didn't get Jesus. Man, I, I love this. And this makes perfect sense when you read John's gospel from start to finish, from, from chapters 1 to 21. Uh, time and time again, we're given a front row seat to who Jesus is through people who at the time didn't get Jesus. And all of these people have what I like to call unlikely stories. You would never have guessed these people would have been used by God in the way that they had. Because it just didn't make sense. And one of my favorite unlikely stories in John is found early on in John chapter 3. And it's here that we're first introduced to a Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been intelligent. He would have known a lot about God. But as we see all throughout the New Testament scriptures, you can, you can actually know a lot of things about God and not know God. It's possible to know a lot about God and really personally not know God. Nicodemus is one of these individuals who introduces us to Jesus, but he didn't quite get Jesus himself, at least not at first. So the story starts in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You can follow along with me on the screen this morning. It says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So because we're still early on in John's gospel, it's easy to kind of trace our steps and see how we got to this point, to this story. After John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, prepares the way for Jesus, Jesus has essentially done two things that, that John talks about. First, he performs his very first miracle at a wedding ceremony in Galilee. He turns water 
into wine. Maybe you know the story. And this miracle is so important because it reveals the, the identity and the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. In John chapter 2, verse 11, we get a picture of what this scene looked like. It says, this miraculous sign, talking about this first miracle, um, at Cana in Galilee, was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. He's, he's showing people who he is, what his mission is. And his disciples believed in him. So second, Jesus, and I think this might be my favorite story of the two, Jesus is seen entering a temple in Jerusalem uh, just before the Passover celebration. And uh, John chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, illustrates this scene uh, just like this. I love this story. It says, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. So here's what Jesus did. And I love this because sometimes we think we know Jesus and then we come across a story like this and it completely blows our mind. It says Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple. Can you picture this in your mind? He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers, uh, their coins all over the floor. And he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So these aren't the only two things that Jesus did before we're introduced to Nicodemus, but they are the only two events that uh, John's gospel records for us in detail. And really, as we take a step back, it's within this context that we're introduced to Nicodemus. It's within this context that we see this, this religious leader, this Pharisee, seeking Jesus out. You see, because of these events, uh, Jesus' name has already spread. And naturally, Nicodemus is curious about who this Jesus is. I mean, who turns water into wine? Who, who goes in uh, to the temple and turns over tables? Who teaches with authority like what he had heard? You know, turning water into wine would have been the talk of the town. And, and what Jesus did in the temple was completely unheard of. You just didn't do this. You don't walk into the temple before Passover and cause a, a public scene like this. I mean, can you imagine that in our churches today? So in John chapter 3, verse 2, we read about how Nicodemus responds to all of this. So hearing about this, hearing the stories, possibly seeing some of it, I, we don't know if he did or not. Here's how Nicodemus responds to this. John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, After dark one evening, so it's nighttime, he came to speak with Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs, and I underline this word, are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus confesses that what Jesus has done leading up to this point is evidence that God has sent him and is with him. I, th I think curious about who Jesus is, Nicodemus went out in the middle of the night to question him, to learn more about, about him, and more importantly, and I think this is where it connects with all of us, to make a decision himself about who he believed that Jesus really is. Is he just a man, or is he something much more? See, I believe that God was stirring this Pharisee's heart, surrounded by a lot of people who didn't believe, a lot of people who went... Uh, who maybe just followed the natural grain of, of culture and society, and here he's hearing about Jesus. Could this possibly be the Messiah? Could this possibly be the one that was foretold for, for a few thousand years? 
God was stirring his heart so much so that he actually needed to sneak out in the middle of the night to avoid getting caught by the other religious leaders. Have you ever done something in your faith, maybe stepped out in boldness, but there's a little bit of fear there of what others might think? I'm sure that that Nicodemus was wrestling with this. You know, 99% of the time that the Pharisees are seen in Scripture talking to Jesus, they were just trying to trap him. They were trying to show him up. They were trying to prove somehow that Jesus was a fraud, that he was not who he said he was. Nicodemus truly wanted to know the truth. He wanted to learn. But when he met Jesus, I I think he he got a little bit more than he bargained for. Listen to how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in, in John 3, verse 3. So Jesus replied to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, You cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I know you've probably kept all the law. Great. I know you've probably never missed a church gathering. Great. You're probably in a small group. Great. You probably serve on the weekends. Great. But here's the deal, church. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus knew a lot about God. As part of the religious elite, he would have known the Old Testament scriptures. He would have passionately kept the Old Testament law. He would have kept the hundreds of man-made laws that that had been put into practice since then, 600 plus. But we see over and over again, and this should be a stark warning for us as individuals today, that the life of a Pharisee only leads in one direction. And and maybe you'll say, well, I'm I'm, I'm not a Pharisee. We We have to search our own hearts this morning, church. The life of a Pharisee leads in one direction. It's a life of legalism, it's a life of pride, and it's a life of wrong motives. When Jesus came on the scene, he challenged all of these things. He even went as far as to get mad, and yeah, Jesus got mad. He went as far as to get mad at anything or anyone who got in the way of another person who was genuinely trying to seek out God. Jesus got mad at people who stood in the way somehow, who built a a barrier for people who were seeking God, who were trying to learn more and, 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 and get to know God in a personal and intimate way. Those are the things that Jesus gets mad about in the New Testament. You trace it back. Every story that you see Jesus angry, it's it's all because of that. It's because as individuals, we think we know it all. We think that that maybe we're the religious elite or somehow we have all the answers. And Jesus would end up getting upset at these people because somehow they were doing something that stood in the way of another person coming to God. Jesus taught a gospel of grace, not law. And this didn't sit well with the Pharisees. See, Nicodemus, he he would have been in difficult company, especially since he had a desire to pursue truth like he did. Can you imagine being surrounded by a bunch of know-it-alls? The pressure to perform. I wonder if we feel that way sometimes. The pressure to perform, the the pressure to dress a certain way, to act a certain way, to say the right things. You know, it's been on my heart since day one that when the church gathers on Sunday morning, this would be an opportunity, this would be a place to come as you are and meet Jesus as you are. So the pressure to perform for Nicodemus, the pressure to live a certain way, This would have been so great that seeking Jesus out in the dark was really the only option. He was curious. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to make a decision for himself. 
sometimes it's hard to do that when we have so many other voices in our lives trying to tell us to do something else. And I love this. Little did Nicodemus know that he was the one who at this time was, was living in the dark. But he was now face to face with the light of the world. Think about that for a second. Nicodemus seeks out Jesus in the dark. He himself is living in the dark, and he comes face to face with the light of the world. We don't know a lot about Nicodemus, but we do know that he left this meeting with Jesus a changed person, a changed man. I believe that he left with a whole new understanding about who God was, a whole new understanding about who God had created him to be. Nicodemus is seen two other times in John's gospel. Once in John chapter 17, where he's actually in the company of all of the other religious leaders. It's really the the religious council. And he ends up making a bold move for Jesus. When nobody else would stick up for Jesus, when everybody wanted to trap him and to somehow prove that he was not who he said he was, Nicodemus speaks up in the company of this Jewish religious council. He speaks up on behalf of Jesus. Can you imagine that? He takes a bold stand. And then in John 19, uh, he's seen with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. This guy was a secret disciple of Jesus. And you could probably say that Nicodemus was even a secret disciple of Jesus at this point as well. And these two men are seen taking down Jesus' body from the cross so that they could give him a proper burial. So the guy who who was surrounded by a a lot of people who were probably steering him the wrong direction, who, who sought Jesus out in the dark, now at the end of John is seen taking the body of Jesus down to give him a proper burial. Can you imagine the journey that this man has been on? God was growing Nicodemus one step at a time. And that's really the first point for today, if you're, if you're going to take notes, is that God often grows a person one step at a time. God often grows a person one step at a, at a time. Nicodemus's story is is not one of instant perfection. Instead, it's one of slow and steady growth. See, he was open to God's leading in his life and allowed God to do what only he could do. God was giving Nicodemus a new heart, a new purpose, a new mission in life, one that loved Jesus. And hear this, church, hated legalism and hated dead religion. Church, we should hate legalism. We should hate dead religion. We should value a relationship with Christ. Nicodemus didn't have to be defined by his past. Instead, God wanted to give him a new hope and a new future. And it's the same in all of our lives today. See, John introduces us to Jesus through people who didn't get Jesus. And Nicodemus was one of these people until Jesus got him. And his story reminds us that God often grows a person one step at a time. That's really what this summer series is all about. Even though we're kind of taking a a detour today, it really connects. Because we're talking about the different aspects of our faith journey. It is a journey. It's a marathon. It's not a quick race. God's not done with any of us. My encouragement for you today would be this. That you would allow God to continue growing you in this season of life. We can learn from Nicodemus' story and see how God's not done with any of us. Let's pray about this this morning. Father, give us a heart that loves Jesus. Give us a heart that hates legalism and dead religion. 
Give us a heart that is open to your leading in our lives. Help us claim the promise that you are not done with us. You're growing us one step at a time. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in in your name and your name alone. Amen. Well, for part two of our message today, I'm going to invite Gunnar Mock up to this stage. This is a hard thing to do. Let's put our hands together for Gunnar this morning. (laughs) Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you, Craig. Appreciate it, man. And yeah, I am a little bit nervous today, Um, but Craig's also got me on a tight leash. Said eight minutes, man. That's all you got. So... And this is also not makeup, this is sunburn. So Shannon finally took us out on the boat, but um, I'm gonna start off right away. Um, We're diving deeper into the book of John, and we continue to see that John is introducing us to Jesus through people who didn't get Jesus. And this is a story of Thomas, and the story of Thomas really is one that illustrates that we can be so close to Jesus, but still miss important truth that's right in front of us. Now, Thomas is one of the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus. Um, We don't actually know a ton about him, um, but we know that he does typically receive a bad rap. He is considered to be labeled the doubter, um, but hopefully today I can kind of present a a counter-argument to that as well. Um, And, you know, doubt typically has some sort of negative connotation associated with it, but uh, this isn't always the case, as demonstrated by Thomas. Now, Thomas was a man who was characterized not only for his intense doubt, but also for his intense faith and belief. Thomas's doubt always had some sort of purpose. It wasn't his way of life. So if you have your Bibles with us today, uh, the second part of the message will be in John chapter 20, 24 through 29. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be up on the screen. Um, Before we read this, we're going to give a little bit of context here first. So Jesus, before this, has just appeared to Mary and Mary. And after that, he appeared to his disciples, who are actually in a locked room, who Jesus just somehow appeared into. Um, And this first time that he appears to his disciples, Thomas is actually not with them. So reading from here, John chapter 20, 24 through 29, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So we see in this passage that Thomas did not get Jesus right away. A dude who had been following Jesus around for three years didn't get such an important truth that was right in front of his face. He didn't fully get Jesus at the time. And although we see that Thomas experiences doubt, he can't be the only one who can be categorized as such. 
When we look at the Gospel of Luke, we also see that the other disciples had this doubt and this fear within themselves. Uh, Thomas was really just the guy that voiced it the most to everybody. Again, intense doubt, intense faith. And an interesting note to see in these early parts of this passage is how Jesus greets these disciples and how it becomes a recurring theme throughout uh, these passages. In previous verses, he greets them with, Peace be with you. And reiterates it again in verse 21, where this peace can be related to shalom. It's a hearkening back to uh, Jesus' teaching in John 14, 27, a verse we actually saw earlier. So this verse is, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. So we see that this peace is supernatural. It's not something that you can get from this world. It's a different kind of peace. And I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, greeting the people who I had just seen that had abandoned me in my greatest hour, I don't think the first thing I would respond to them with is peace. And not just a normal peace, but a peace that transcends this world. You would think there'd be some sort of anger. There'd be bitterness, rebuke from Jesus towards the disciples. But no, Jesus demonstrates an amazing response of love to his disciples and Thomas. Now, further along in the passage, Thomas has a response to the disciples, which is him simply blurting out, like just blaring it out there, that he won't believe until he sees the nail wounds in his hands, puts his hand into his side. Something amazing happens here, though. After Thomas says he needs this, he needs to do these things, what happens when Jesus reveals himself? What happens? What does Thomas do? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He declares it right there. He didn't have to put his hand into his side. He didn't have to do it. He knew immediately who his Savior was. And this is a callback to 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. And you know, church, there are times in our lives where doubt sets in. And maybe not just for a day or two, there might be whole seasons ravaged, marred, overtaken by it. Deep doubt. And, you know, currently my wife and I are in one of those seasons. I have so many doubts right now. I've just graduated with my master's, um, you know, and I don't have the most stable job that I would like. And have I made the right career choice here? Will I be able to support my family financially? We will be able to move forward in this life. But if we get caught in these if-onlys, church, if only I had the right job, then I would be happy. If only I made enough money, then I could have kids. If only, church, don't get caught in these if-onlys with all this doubt. You know, and all of these things have crossed my mind, and I find that I have these if-onlys and doubts rising ever higher and higher. They seem to be building on top of one another. It seems like there's a riptide and I'm being pulled under as soon as I've come up for air. 
But as we move forward in this passage, we see that Jesus delivers hope. There's hope within this doubt for all of us. In verse 29, he says something that is meant for all of us. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Church, let's rely on the eyes of our faith, not the eyes in our head. Believing is true seeing, and eyesight was never a guarantee that people really saw Jesus. And Judas Iscariot was one of the greatest witnesses to this tragic truth. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, demonstrates this faith without believing. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So church, I've just thrown a lot at you, but the main point in all of this is that we should let our doubt deepen our faith as we continue to search for the answer. The good news here is that God's grace is greater than our doubts and fear. And that's the second point in your bulletin, if you have it. God's grace is greater than our doubts and fears. This doubt that we may incur can lead to questions. And these questions can lead to answers which lead to greater faith. It's only when our doubt gets stuck. It's only when it gets stuck in stubbornness and pridefulness can it be bad. And Thomas' story really shows that doubt can be okay. God has provided grace to us that helps us grow in our doubt, and it can be a vehicle that leads to greater faith. Again, God's grace is greater than our doubts and fears, church. Let's pray. God, I I thank you for this church. I thank you so much for Ryan and Craig for speaking uh, your great word to to us today. Uh, I pray for this church itself. I I pray for Ryan, and I I pray that you protect this uh, congregation from us, and that when the congregation looks up at us, they see you, they don't see us talking. In your name, amen. And again, we have Ryan Ross coming up to the stage, and uh, I'd like to give him a hand of applause as well, just like you gave to me, so thank you. Thank you. As we dive into another unlikely story, that of Simon Peter, the one who is described as ordinary and uneducated, um, I'm going to call out a reflection I had as we were sitting preparing for today that uh, what makes us qualified to be up here and telling these stories. Um, We're sitting around realizing we all have beards, we all have failing eyesight, (laughs) thinning hairlines, great dad bods. (laughs) okay Gunnar and I have those qualifications (laughs) the thing that holds it together is we have stories to tell we're Christians here to share our stories and Peter um, Peter is described the most of the disciples in the four gospels and he is described as one the uneducated one Uh, he hasn't learned how to read or write. Um, We know this because his letters were written by his friend. His son Mark wrote his version of the gospel for us. Uh, He does not know, he doesn't have any formal learning, which astounds the people around him. He's also the ordinary disciple. He's the one that blends in the crowd. 
nobody ever really noticed him before. He's just kind of there. Walk by him, never noticed. He's a working class individual. Uh, he's a fisherman by trade, and the gospel goes out of the way to indicate that he prefers fishing naked for whatever reason. So imagine his surprise when this man comes alongside, hey, do you want to follow me? Um, very unlikely story for him. What we know about Peter in his stories throughout the gospel is he's a practical man. Uh, he's the one that's always questioning Jesus, inserting his foot into his mouth. Come, follow me. But Lord, where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to eat? Let's feed the 5,000 people. But Lord, where are we going to get all this food and the money to feed all these people? Come, let's cross the sea. I want to go to Galilee. But Lord, there's a storm coming. How do you propose we do this? He's always asking the questions and always getting chided by Jesus. Oh, you have little faith. He's also a man of action. We see this in the transfiguration. Peter is invited to this glorious moment where uh, Christ is there with his spirit, Elijah, Moses, and God. And while everybody else is face down worshiping, Peter's over in the corner building temples and altar. Come on, guys, we've got to build this great, momentous occasion. And get, again gets rebuked by the audible voice of God. Stop, listen, this is my son. The night that Je Jesus is arrested, the Roman soldiers come. There's an awkward tension. Peter's the first one to draw his sword and go after the crowd. Get away from him. So we have this ordinary, uneducated, working-class man who questions everything, quick to take action, quick to speak, gets in lots of trouble. Um, read, the, read the Gospel of Mark. Great stories of every time he inserts his foot into his mouth. So all, all these stories, there's lots to talk about Peter. But what we learn with Peter, or what I, I see a lot in demonstration, is that God meets us where we're at. Peter's story shows this a lot. It could be uneducated, ordinary, plain, it, invisible to, to everyone else. Yet God will show up and say, hey, you, I want you. I want to focus on one particular episode in Peter's life. In John 21, uh, this is at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, some context for this. So Jesus has been crucified in his hour of need. Peter shows up at the trial, denies Jesus three times, runs away from the city, sobbing bitterly, disappointed in himself. Uh, it's several weeks after the resurrection. We don't know where Peter is um, up to this point, but where we find him is he's back on his fishing boat, fishing naked, as it's clearly written. Uh, he's gone back to his old life before Jesus. And while he's fishing, Jesus comes to the shoreline, and Peter doesn't recognize him until Jesus performs the miracle that caught his attention the first time. Hey, you didn't catch any fish. Oh, that's bad. Throw your net off to the right side, and they catch an abundance of fish. And then Peter realizes, oh my gosh, this is Jesus, jumps off the boat, swims ashore. And in meeting where Peter is at, this is the first time we see recorded that Jesus re-encounters Peter after his denial. Peter's full of guilt and shame and embarrassment. Uh, but Jesus doesn't lead off with that. He says, come, look, I've made you breakfast. Come sit by me. How are you doing? What is going on in your life? How is the catch today? Um, spend some time with him. And then we get to verse 15. 
So after they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. A second time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, on the surface level, Jesus is meeting Peter where he's at. Again, he's full of this guilt, this shame. I have walked with this man, seen him count numerous miracles, taught me so much, and yet I deny him in his hour of need three times. And three times he asks, do you love me? And a third time Peter feels saddened by this. Perhaps it's because he's realizing the connection. I've denied you three times. You're asking me three times. I feel bad about this. But I want to take us one step further um, because there's nuances in the language, and English is a fickle language. Um, there is something more at play here, and to do that, we're going to do a brief survey of Greek language. Um, the word love. There are seven words in the Greek language that translate as love. And the New Testament is written in this language. Um, to understand what Jesus is asking and how Peter is replying to him, we need to understand a few things. So uh, one, we're going to focus on two, two versions of love here. So the first one that we're going to bring up is uh, phileos love. Phileos is a deep affection that we have for another person. This is something that is built over time through shared experience, shared sacrifice, shared emotions. Um, we've been at the bottom. We've been through the worst. Um, this is the brotherly love. I've got your back. You've got mine. Um, we have a band of brothers. We have that person we can call in the middle of the night, and we know they're going to answer. Um, we have something deep that connects us, and you are ever so important to me. So we have phileos love. And then we have agape love. Agape is known as the, the selfless love, the love we give with no regard, no conditions, no matter what your story is, there's no expectation of reciprocation. I love you, I give freely. So in understanding these two, we want to come back to John's text. Jesus is coming to Peter. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you agape? Do you selflessly love me? No conditions, no expectations, more than anything, more than these other disciples, more than these fishermen, more than anything else in your life. Do you love me this way? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know that I phileos you. You know that I love you. We've been through a lot. I've got your back. I know you've got mine. And Jesus comes back and he says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you selflessly love me? Will you give yourself to me with no conditions, no regards? And Peter says, Lord, you know me. You know that I phileos you. You know I love you like a brother. We've been through a lot. I know you've got my back. The third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileos me? And Peter is hurt that God would ask, do you love me as a brother? And Peter's response is, 
Lord, you know everything in my heart. You know that I phileos you. I love you as a brother. In this, we see that Jesus is meeting Peter where he is at. He calls him to selflessly love him more than anything in life itself. And all Peter can offer up is, I love you like a brother, because we've been through a lot. And Jesus steps down a notch. Will you just love me unconditionally? I'll love you like a brother. Okay, Peter, can you promise to love me like a brother? And Peter is hurt by this, but he says, yes, that's what I can do. And Jesus wraps this up, saying, good, then continue to follow me. Peter's story shows us how God presents himself to the unlikely, even more so to meet us where we're at. There's a lot of stories about Peter, but there's a lot I'm sure we could relate to ourselves. Consider a time when you have demanded your own plan to God. God, we can't do that. We have to do it this way. Or perhaps a time you focused on your current challenge rather than trusting God to meet all of your needs. Maybe there's been a time you felt uneducated, unknowledgeable, not gifted enough. You're just plain and ordinary. What do you have to give? Or maybe there's been a time where you feel like you don't love God enough. I don't, I don't love God enough. I'm not devoted enough. How on earth could I possibly be here with something to offer him? I would encourage you that Peter's story shows us that God will meet us wherever we are at. Mistakes errors, anytime we've rushed ahead, anytime we've said the wrong thing, done the wrong thing, he will meet us and ask us, do you love me? Follow me. So in pulling this all together, God presents himself to those who typically wouldn't get God. And today we've looked at just three stories. Now we consider you all, have you all consider what is your story? How are you an unlikely? Because we all are unlikelies. Perhaps you are more like Nicodemus. You know a lot about God, a lot about religion and traditions, but you are wondering, what does it truly mean to intimately know God? Perhaps you are like Thomas. You want to encounter God. You know God, but you're just waiting for that next thing, the right sign, the new job, that one person to say the right thing to you that one prayer to be answered. You're just waiting for that one, one thing. Perhaps you're like Peter, feeling uneducated and ordinary, keep stumbling about, doing all the wrong things, saying all the wrong things, and yet God still comes back. God is in pursuit of us, and scripture tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like this morning's message, you are mine. I have you, and you are mine. The knowledge in our heads can't keep us away. The emotions and doubts in our hearts cannot keep us away. The actions and the wrong words that we say cannot keep us away from the love of God. Nothing can separate us. He simply asks, will you follow me? So knowing that we all have a short story, my challenge to you this week is to share your story with somebody. You don't need to be an expert in apologetics or evangelism. We all have an unlikely story. So share it with at least one person today or this week. 